the UK scandal that also threatens essential services in Australia. And don't be conned into economic slavery dressed as freedom. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report. It's the 25th of January 2024. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. All right, in this week's show, Craig, we're going to do a television review, which is uh, for an excellent show. And the reason we're paying attention to it is because there's an absolutely a parallel in Australia. This has rocked, this is this has created a scandal that has rocked UK politics. It's quite extraordinary over there. And people need to know that the issue in Australia is almost as bad and it has to be looked at. And it's to do with um, post offices. We're going to review Mr Bates versus the post office. And Craig, we're going to do something else that I think is going to be quite controversial. We're going to take on the myth of Javier Malay, uh-huh. who is there's a lot of hype around Mr. Malay right now, but we've seen this sort of thing before. Um, he gave a speech at Davos last weekend, and everyone was totally misinterpreting the speech. It's right in there what you need to know, and it's shocking. Um, but it doesn't surprise us, and we've been combating this type of economics for a long time. Um, anyway, so hang around for that, and um, that'll be that'll make for interesting debate in the comments when we get to there. Because a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people are, are thinking, "Oh, he, he's the next great white hope." Um, but remember, before we begin, uh, help us get the the message out. Like the show, um, share it in social media as widely as possible. Subscribe, and when you do, ring the bell icon. Um, definitely comment. Um, and I'm hoping to provoke comments this week, but definitely comment. That's really important. Get the debate going and uh, donate. We are not uh, uh, just commentators. We're activists. Everything we talk about, we're doing things to change. I'll, I'm preparing with Glenn Isherwood to go back to Canberra again in the first fortnight of February, Craig. Um, and we're going to be ta- I'll talk about this in a second a little bit more. We're taking on this RBA um, reforms bill. Right, and in in the meetings we're going to be having there, um, we are the party that's leading the fight against this. And this is this is all about economic freedom as well. Believe me, um, uh, so that needs people's support. We really and we also it. got the fact that you'll be travelling to various places around the country on the uh, the rural bank closures issue. Yes, when they have those hearings, uh, we've got a trip to South Australia coming up soon, and another trip to Western Australia, apparently Northern really? Western Australia, which is, whew. That's hot. Hope it's going to be. Hope it's going to be a bit cooler by then. Um, all right. Now, so before we begin, I just want to um, remind people, as we mentioned, the RBA reforms bill. So the, the, we're now still in the submissions phase. Submissions close on the second of February. Remember, um, if you haven't made a submission yet, get a submission in. If you have, you may have noticed that you've received a reply from Treasury. Now, Craig, this is always a a. Um, uh, a, a landmark in our campaigns. We've done so many of these campaigns where we're trying to get people to interface with government through the through the, through committees, etc., through inquiries. Um, and there's always this inflection point when you get when you generate your first form letter. Yeah. Right. So people all around Australia this week received letters from Treasury defending this policy, and it's exactly the same letter. Um, 
and it's a form letter written by Treasury on behalf of the Treasurer. But it's anonymous. Yeah, no, they haven't put their name on it. And we were joking today, we think it's because in the past, we've made the Treasury officials who've signed these form letters quite notorious because we've talked about them a lot on our show. Yeah. So this one is, has been sent on behalf of Jim Chalmers, but um, it's anonymous. Anyway, that tells us that we're at that stage of the, of the campaign, but it's vital that you get your, your um, submission in. Your submission is a good chance, unless you prepare a, a multi-page thing with all kinds of references, there's a good chance your submission will be treated as correspondence. But don't let that put you off. It'll all send a message to Parliament. Now, we, um, our researcher, Melissa Harrison, has just put in a submission based on an article that she wrote for the Australian Alert Service last year because the question came up, um, given that the removal of the Treasurer's veto over the Reserve Bank is the first recommendation of this review, and it wasn't in the terms of reference, but out of 50 recommendations, it's there for the priority. Where did the, who, who recommended this to the review? Where did this idea come from? And we went through all the submissions. None of them reckoned it, recommended it. The only submission to actually mention the power, Section 11, was the Citizens' Parties, which was written by Elisa Barwick. And I'm now definitely blaming her for this power, Jim Chalmers trying to remove this power. It's as if she brought it to their attention. Um, yeah, that's not quite true, but that, that, we're the only ones to mention it. So they have prioritised removing the democratic power over the Reserve Bank based on silence, based on nothing, right? This, this is not true. They're hiding something. We've put in FOI requests to find out where the recommendation come from. Treasury has admitted they have a documentation related to it, but they refuse to hand it over. So we've made a submission to that effect, including the FOI correspondence, um, with Treasury don't, to the committee. Don't be surprised if it comes back with national security issues <laughs> uh, involved here. We can't release it. <clears throat> I, I, in this day and age, I would not be surprised. Yeah. Um, so we've put in a, we've, we, Melissa's put in a submission relating to that and we've recommended to the committee they ask Treasury where this idea come from and demand Treasury hand, it over, hand over these documents to the inquiry. That, the, the, the committee must not endorse this bill until they at least find out where the idea came from. Because remember, this is a 72-year power. It's never been used. It was put in there by the greats of Labor, Ch Curtin and Chifley, to make sure that there was always democratic power over the banking system. The Reserve, the, the 1937 Banking Royal Commission recommended this because they said the principle has to be that the elected government must be the ultimate authority in the financial system. That was all established back in the 30s and 40s. And now this punk, Jim Chalmers, who counts the head of the Australian Banking Association, Anna Bly, as he's personal confidant, right, who's part of an a, a, a generation of technocrats and apparatchiks who want to hand over our rights and our freedoms, our economic freedoms to the Bank for International Settlements in Basel and um, the, the central, unelected central bankers, they think they, can do, they, they think they can give away. It's not his power to give away, it's ours. It's the people's power over the banking system. That's what we've got to hammer them on. So anyway, you've got till the 2nd of February to get your um, submissions in. All right, that said, Craig, let's get into it because this is actually going to be a, uh, this is a great story. I'm really keen to tell people this story and prompt them to watch the show. The UK scandal that also threatens essential services in Australia. And I'll, I've got a new pair of glasses and I'll be trying out for this, for this show today. They're bifocals. Hopefully I won't have to squint as much. We'll see. Um, watch if you can. 
the, the British ITV drama called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. Um, now, because most of our audience is in it, if you're in the UK and you haven't seen it, watch it, but you would have heard about it. It's on ITVX, which is the equivalent of you know, ABC IV or whatever. If you're in Australia, you can watch it, but you've got to use what's called a VPN. VPN, and if you don't know what that is, go and ask somebody. But it's possible to watch it, right? You can do that. Um, and it's highly recommended. Now, before we, before we go any further, let's just play the trailer that's on YouTube for this four-part drama that aired at the beginning of January. Watch this. The computer system post office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. You're responsible for the loss. I haven't got that money, and I don't know where it's gone. These deficits were most likely caused by you. That is the post office case. All our hopes, all our savings down the pan. That was a lie, actually. We are fighting a war against an enemy owned by the British government. While we're just skint little people. This is about the reputation of the post office. It's not, it's about people's lives, you moron. Finally, 555 of us now, ready to tell our stories. Mr. Bates vs. the Post Office, coming soon on ITV1 and ITVX. Now, that's actually, having watched the show, Craig, that's actually a pretty good mm. trailer. They're, all those things you've just seen do get elaborated quite well in the show, and it's, a, and it's, a, and it's a, a shocking story. My interest in this was piqued by the equivalent post office scandal in Australia, yeah. right? Now, we know the licensed post office group, and the licensed post office group represent the... Um, 2,850 small business post office licensees who operate um, post offices under licence to Australia Post, but as small businesses. And they buy a licence, right, and it becomes a business. They've in, collectively, they've invested $3 billion of their own money in the business. Now, we're going to elaborate a bit more on their plight later, but they are the ones who brought this to my attention because they saw, as I said, this really resonated with them. They saw that what these poor their equivalents in the UK, which, which are called sub-postmasters, what they ex have gone through over the last 20 years is a... It's, it's actually more extreme than the Australian case, but it's definitely a parallel um, with the Australian case. At its essence, what we're talking about is a story of neoliberal corporate managerialism colliding with community-oriented essential services. And what I mean by that is you have governments... And we'll talk about this more with, with the Malay thing in the second part. In the 80s, start, well, starting in the 70s and the 80s, whole, this, this, this mania took over. Oh, governments must become efficient like the private sector. The private sector is so efficient and government is so wasteful. You know, these, when governments deliver essential services, it's so wasteful compared to how the private sector does it. So one of the things they initially did is a whole bunch of privatisations, right? Oh, let, let, let the private sector do it. And look where that got us, right, 30, 40 years later. We get power bills. Exactly. The other thing they did that usually preceded privatisation, but in some cases stopped there, was corporatisation. They would corporatise it first. And the idea was, well, let's make this 
government service act like a corporation because these corporations they're so wonderful they're so efficient they're perfect look how look how Cheaply, they deliver services because they've got the profit motive, Craig. The profit motive explains everything. That's the only way people get off their butt and do everything because they want to make as much money as possible. And that's how you make things efficient. Never mind, you the know... Common good, the common the good. The benefit for those who are underprivileged, those who aren't on six-figure incomes, the unemployed, Never, the dis- ne- disabled and so forth. It's all been wrapped up, as you say, yep. by the corporate idea of making a profit it's the idea of yep. the pub, uh, private profits versus public good public good and the, there's a clash there the, the two are not compatible and anyone that's in uh, was in the old Labor Party knew about this because this was the essence of the fight by Chifley and Curtin during World War two but in the in the banking system we're, we're not, and we're not saying you you there doesn't need to be reward for effort right enterprise People have to have enterprise that. is a good thing but this is pigeonholing people into one dimension. Yes. You are only interested in money. And the Americans, can I say, are, the, are far and away the worst. That's why the private, they spend more money on health in America with the worst outcomes because they think it's justified. You go in there for a broken leg and you get a million dollar bill, right? Because that doctor is only interested in money. That's why he improvises to serve you, right? Whereas as in the history of the world, there's th- millions of people who've worked in charities and, and missionaries and whatever who... That is the last thing on their mind, and they do... I mean, Fred Hollows. Mm. I like seeing the Fred Hollows ad still yeah. on TV, his son's fronting the Because he, he, uh, he goes into poor places and gets people to see again. Exactly. Every eye is an eye. You, yeah. know, they, you, hear, his, you hear his voice. Yeah. Um, you know, was he... Mo- how, much, how many billions did Fred Hollows make from what he did? No, no, he talked us into paying 25 bucks to help some poor African person see and have the... You know, you know. But this is all... No, no, no. no you, you're only... You're only um, motivated by profit, therefore we have to structure the supply of essential services in a way that the profit motive can take over. Mm. And so what they did is they corporatized. They corporatized the post office here. They haven't privatized, although they've tried. And they corporatized it in the post office in the United Kingdom. They corporatized a lot of hospital delivery, health delivery. We're going to talk about the hospitals. The, the, sorry, the post offices. Um, and I must say, in both cases, it's ended very, very badly because... You have the central business, the, the head office, which is the, the politicians who are ultimately responsible for this because they're the shareholders, the government is a shareholder. They go and headhunt the best corporate talent and these people turn up to be absolute a-holes. And they are interfacing with the people who actually deliver the service on the ground, which in the case of what we're going to talk about, I mean, these are, it's shocking. These are people that are out at English picture postcards. Mm. Right, little quaint little villages where you've got the butcher, the baker, and the postmaster. Right, often the same person um, in town. They're a they're a pillar of the community. They're the salt of the earth. They 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 hardly go. They hardly take holidays or whatever because they're, they're part of the, the the community fabric. Right, and those people who the last they just want to get by. They just want to you know they bought their post office because it's a business they can make a living. They make a contribution to the community. They feel proud of their role in the community, and that collided with these corporate apparatchiks. So let's tell the story. I would say Robbie that Christine Holgate was an exception to this. I mean she came out of the corporate sector, but she had a passion for actually dealing with ordinary folk and with these small business people because she recognised fundamentally what the value is of these yep. small corporate the small uh, small business orientated um, enterprises because small business right yes they've got to make a profit 
but they also are in a position of service. And she understood that, and guess what happened? She got rolled by this biggest scumbag in our, as ever Prime Minister, you know, Scummo, who's now decided to leave and go into a corporate uh, job. No, no surprise. He's also he's writing, probably going to start World he's War also III gonna, He's also writing a book, Robbie. Surprise, surprise, about what a great Christian he was being. In Parliament, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this... The, this, this when well, we talk about corporatism and so forth, Christine Holgate was the exception. We'll come back to Christine, but... It's good you raised it because one of the connections between what we're going to say with Australia and the UK is Christine Holgate, who was the exception in Australia, one of the reasons she, was, she wanted to get the job in Australia is because when she was young, she'd been a postie in the UK. Yep. And she'd actually experienced the postal service. She'd been a postie working her way up to the spectacularly successful CEO she became, uh, actually delivering postie. Right, and so she had a connection to it. All right, so this is this is I'll, I'll going to sketch the story, but like I said, definitely try and you can look up some of these stuff, these details online. But here's what happened: um, in 1999, the the British Post Office started rolling out a software product called Horizon for accounting, uh, computerized accounting. Before that, they were still doing paperwork and whatever, so it was a computerized accounting system for all the post offices. And because there's eleven and a half thousand of them, they had to roll it out over time, right? Um, it had problems immediately. This, this software system had problems absolutely immediately. Now, here's a, as an aside, it's a funny thing that you and I on this show over 10 years have talked many times about what we, the scam of public-private partnerships, where this is how infrastructure delivery is done in Australia so that instead of that just being an essential service, it's done in a way where the government takes all the risk, but the private partner gets massive profits out of it. And Macquarie Bank mastered this model. In the UK, they have the same thing, but they gave it a name called the Private Finance Initiative, PFI. And in fact, the Horizon software product was as a result of a private finance initiative. So it was actually subsidised. It was, it was designed by Fujitsu, or the UK subsidiary of Fujitsu, one of the biggest corporations in the world, Japanese corporation. But it was subsidised by the government in the first place, right? And they spent, the, the government and the, tax, and the post office spent a lot of money on the product, rolling it out. And that was one of the issues because, of course, they've committed to this product mm-hmm. and the, the corporate managers of Australia, of UK Post and the corporate managers of Fujitsu, they don't want to admit there's something wrong with their product, right? So um, what happened was they would, they, these, these poor um, uh, postmasters, sub, they're called sub, there's one postmaster that runs the main corporation, then there's all these thousands of sub-postmasters, they would be having to do the accounting at the end of each day and balance the books. And the, the system would tell them if they'd balance the books. And the system is starting to give them these um, messages saying, oh, no, you're 1,000 pounds short, you're 2,000 pounds short. Contact, they were contractually obliged as post, sub-postmasters to, to, to make up any shortfall out of their own money. But because now some of these post offices are in busy suburbs, of London and, and busy streets and whatever, and maybe it might be hard for them to know, well, how could we be a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds short? But some of these, a lot of them were in these little tiny picture postcard villages, right? The idea of being a thousand pounds short or two thousand pounds short, they're like, how could that be possible? They knew they hadn't stolen it, right? They weren't pilfering the till. How could that be possible? So they would call up the helpline. Horizon Helpline, and this is where you start to see how early on the corporate management knew that they were covering up here. 
because the people who manned the helpline office were operating from a script, although they denied it, because they all said the same thing. Oh, you're the only one having this problem. Every single person, thousands and thousands of postmasters who called that helpline for, for help with this software were told, oh, you're the only one, so that's funny, you're the only one having this problem. And this was PR cover-up BS, right? Um, so they, these poor postmasters had no idea, a lot of them doubted themselves. Um, those who doubted themselves, Craig, were manipulated essentially into plea bargains because they were being told, you could be charged with theft. Oh, here's another aside. Under Britain's legal system, archaic legal system, the post office as a corporation had private prosecution powers. So the post office as a, as a corporation prosecuted 700 of these people and sent 400 to jail. The British government, the proper authority, prosecuted about 300 more Right, that's what that's the power the post office had over these people. Um, so because they could be charged with the main charges were false accounting, fraud, and theft. And false account being charged with false accounting was better than being charged with theft. So a lot of them allowed themselves because they were, they were doubting. You know, they weren't technologically savvy and whatever. They they allowed themselves to be talked into plea bargaining for um, false accounting, right, and, and being charged with those sort of things. They would be they'd have their post offices taken away from them. They would be um, recorded with a criminal conviction. One of the stars in the, in the show, um, Joe Hamilton, she wasn't allowed to, she used to volunteer at the local um, daycare. She wasn't allowed anymore after she had a criminal conviction recorded against her. Think, little things like that, right? They're just are compounding all around the country. Um, now, it's called Mr. Bates versus the post office because every story has an extraordinary individual. Mm. And, you know, this is the extraordinary individual, this guy, Mr. Bates, Alan Bates. He's a Welshman. What made him extraordinary is from the beginning, he knew he wasn't at fault and he didn't doubt himself one scary. He didn't doubt himself. And he knew there was something wrong with this dodgy accounting system, right? And the post office would send the heavies around to him. To, it starts off with that scene to intimidate him. And he said, well, charge me then. But I've done nothing wrong, and they couldn't charge him. But what they could do is take his post office away. So he and his wife ended up going and running an Airbnb, or a B&B, of course, not Airbnb. They, they start going and running a and b but he monitors this issue, and he starts noticing. He had also received the message, you're the only one having this problem. But then he sees in the news, oh, a postmaster's been charged. This postmaster's been charged. That sub-postmaster's been charged. And he notices, he realised, well, okay, I wasn't the only one having the problem. And then he also realises, well, if they weren't going to charge me, even though they accuse me, then they really don't have much of a case. And so he had a lot of confidence. Mm. He organised a, a federation of these postmasters into a force to fight back. The fight back took 20 years. 20 years. These people had all their livelihoods taken away from um, 20 years um, because they're up against these corporate hacks who were totally committed to their role in the corporation, which meant, even if they felt charitable, Craig, they got lawyers telling them, you cannot admit any culpability, right? And as the CEO, by the way, the CEO for most of this story, Paula Venels, was a high-ranking priest in the Church of England. Talk, you know, she, would, she would preach sermons on Sunday and jail sub-postmasters Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, 
now the scandals are up that they've called they've called for her to have her OBE handed back. Um, but she actually can't do. I mean, she said she would, but it's irrelevant. There has to be more repercussions than that. The post office executives who achieved successful prosecutions received bonuses for them. And as the story shows, they knowingly, they knew the people they were prosecuting were innocent. I mean, they, they, this, is still, this is still yet to um, uh, play out. They essentially wanted to run it. The cover story that the post office wanted to run was this. We had, this, we had the system of sub-postmasters, and lo and behold, it was full of crooks. And that was only exposed when we rolled out this new accounting software and found them. Mm-hmm. The software mm-hmm. caught them out. Thousands and thousands of crooks running the British postal system. That's the narrative they ran for years. Now, there was a few turning points. Um, uh, uh, oh, before I get into that, think about this, and this is why Australians need to consider the parallels. It's an indictment of the system that this is happening. Hundreds of pillars of the community are being sent to jail. Um, and it, it's now being called the largest miscarriage of justice in British history, as that, as that uh, preview said. But it was largely ignored by Parliament, except for a handful of MPs. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know what that tells me? There's something about the way this played out that seemed almost normal. Cor- they, the corporate power seemed normal. The idea, a lot of people probably rationalised and thought, oh, yeah, there's a lot of crooks out there. The idea that, you, that, you, that your local postmaster would be a crook because um, everyone wants money. I mean, it is a neoliberal idea. Everyone's just motivated by money, right? Um, people would just accepted this. And, and it was, if it wasn't for a few members of parliament, this actually would have gone nowhere. Um, the key turning point in the 20-year saga was when... Uh, well, there's a few of them. Bates started leading the fight back, and he had the he had the clarity, the moral clarity to do that. Um, an MP, a Tory MP, actually credit to him, a Buffnot, he shamed the post office into funding a genuinely independent inquiry by a forensic accountant. And it's one of those things where it came down to the quality of the person they picked. Mm-hmm. The guy that actually got that job, the post office, the postal people, the postmasters were skeptical. How can it be independent if the post office is funding it? But the guy they picked for the job ended up being perfect. He was a forensic accountant, and he, he was so flabbergasted by what he found out, he became the fiercest advocate for the postmasters. Um, then a Fujitsu whistleblower came forward and said, yep, everything you've been told about this system being perfect and it's your, or robust, they called it. No, it was full of flaws, and we were, we were constantly trying to patch it behind the scenes. We were, we were, we were breaking in electronically to postmasters' um, computers and changing their data behind their backs, right? He came, he came clean with all this. And he actually, test, he was really frightened, but he testified for that eventually. And then a top lawyer contacted Alan Bates and um, organised a class action funded by, the, one of the ways they run class actions um, for people who've got no money is you get, um, there, are, there are businesses who fund class actions and it's a, they take a risk, but they get a hefty part of the payout if it's successful. And in this particular case, they got a class action. It was $55 million payout. But when the, when the funders took their share, there was only $12 million left to share among 550 people. Um, and that wasn't good enough. However, up to that point, they had, that, that, you know, at least they had their convictions overturned. The, the ruling at the end of that court case was by the judge was that this was an affront to justice. This, these, these prosecutions were an affront to justice. And then that led to other, other court cases where individuals 
could get their convictions overturned. And they, in 2021, a lot of convictions overturned. And there's now about 93, until the show was made, about 93 out of 700 had had their convictions overturned. But the key turning point was this show itself. And I have to, like, I really take my hat off to this, to this drama. Um, because the drama... Once it aired on the 1st or the 4th of January this year, a few weeks ago, once it aired in, on UK TV, suddenly it got the, the attention of the whole political system. It is the biggest scandal of the 21st century in the UK. Like, I can't, I'm not exaggerating. This is enormous there now. Um, so the, the shock was so, the, the impact of the drama was so, so much that an MP went on UK television and said this. How come the government didn't notice? You were asleep on, uh, on duty, weren't well, you? no, Susanna, I don't think that's fair. I, I, I mean, you have to understand that before this week, not one drama starring Toby Jones had been made on this subject. Not one. And that, to me, shows a lack of duty of care. You know, Toby Jones is a very fine actor, but what was he doing? Um, you know, I understand the detectorists was, was very good, but... Who was that helping? And, and what I want to know is why it took so long for ITV to make this drama. There, there's been many miscarriages of justice. I, I was on Twitter this morning and someone was tweeting about ex-commandos in, in Afghan, Afghanistan and um, how they've been abandoned by the British government. And, and what I say to them is, you know, the government can't do anything, can't do everything, can't do everything. And everything, you know, can't do everything... Um, but we can watch dramas, you know, and we will watch dramas. It, 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 you know, if they're especially if they're starring Toby Jones. Now, in case you couldn't tell, and a lot of people couldn't, that's actually a comedian. So the, 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 the British TV show is real and the, and the questions are real, but she's spliced herself into that interview to say, well, we couldn't do anything because they hadn't made a drama yet. Toby Jones, who plays Mr Bates, hadn't made a drama yet. It's his fault. And the reason so many people actually thought this was a genuine interview, and that, 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 that comedian, by the way, it's the biggest thing she's ever done. Um, it's gone viral. The reason they thought it was genuine is because that is how the system works too much. Mm. We've seen that in Australia. Unless it's in the media, the politicians aren't interested, right? But has it made an impact? And so there's, there's a... Um, they went from offering the, the victim £75,000 each to now there's a billion pounds on the table for compensation. Fujitsu is being asked to contribute to the, to the um, compensation fund. And, and now we're talking about serious money for, the, for the, um, the victims. The government has said they will overturn all convictions in one fell swoop, essentially, just mass overturn them, um, as they should, all on the back of this drama. So this is, this is an excellent story. But why... Are we so? Why have we picked out this one case? Well, because of what Craig mentioned earlier. We, the Citizens Party, led the fight to get truth about what happened to Christine Holgate, and that educated us about the plight of LPOs in Australia. Now, in 2021, I interviewed Angela Cramp, the executive director of the LPO Group, um, on our Citizens Insight show, and we'll put a link to that below if you haven't seen it. But the the, uh, the LPOs have seen this British drama and they are um, totally struck by it because they see absolute parallels between what they've gone through. I just want to read you, the, the LPO group on their Twitter account tweeted on the 11th of January 
Your stories are resonating with licensees of Australia Post outlets all across Australia. The similarities are chilling. And what they're talking about is, sorry, no one in Australia has gone to jail. So it's not quite as extreme. But what they're talking about is the mistreatment by the corporate um, uh, system of these people who are providing the service at the end of the day. And the people at the corporate level are making their profits and bonuses at the expense of the people who actually deliver our postal services. Right, and as we put out in a press release today, Craig, those people, there's 2,850 of them. Most of them have been there for a few decades now. They know the Australia Post backwards. Mm. The people ruling over them are short-term execs that have come from Woolworths, McDonald's, the banks, mm -hmm. and they're going to be there for a year or two and then move on, capitalising on their bonus, and somehow and, and, and they'll, they'll suck up to the government and they'll do dirty deals with the government to... Or what do you want to achieve out of this, etc.? And the government, um, you know, uh, like with Christine Holgate, she had there was a, there was a privatisation agenda she, that she had to fight against because if it wasn't for her, it would have gone through because that that management and this current management would do that sort of thing with the government. Um, for so that's the that's what the LPOs here have experienced. When we got the inquiry in 2021, the LPOs made a submission. LPO group made a submission to the inquiry, um, the Senate inquiry. And they describe their experience of Australia Post corporate policies as soul-destroying, that's a quote, which they said was, quote, bringing the network to its knees as costs and workloads for licensees rose substantially while incomes declined in real terms. The busier we were, the more work we did, the more money we lost. It was akin to modern slavery with the full knowledge of the board of directors, the shareholder ministers and the government of the day. It was unconscionable. And that's what they experienced for years and years and years until... Christine Holgate came along. Yep. She took their concerns seriously. She made changes. She reformed Australia Post. She actually made, she, she did that fantastic deal with the banks, made the banks pay money properly to be represented at, through Bank at Post. And she made sure that revenue that came in from that, $220 million, was shared with the LPOs. And it, for the, and it made them viable for the first time ever. And because she did that, and because she actually, she actually, she actually perfected the um, resolving that conflict between the corporate structure and how, and how you've got to manage a corporation and services, she showed it can be done, right? Because she did that and, and saved the services instead of privatising them, saved LPOs instead of bankrupting them, she became an enemy of the system and they couldn't drum around, these politicians in both sides couldn't drum around a power fast enough. You know, Albanese was the first to call for her sacking after Scott Morrison, you know, ordered her to leave Parliament. He later apologised, but he's now been in government for a year and a half. And what has he done to address what's actually happening at the post office? Nothing. The post office, the, the LPOs, the licensees are now are, are screaming again, this has gone back to the bad old days. All they want to do is shut services. They're talking about closing post, thousands of post offices around Australia. They're talking about reducing postal services, etc. That's all they can think about. And right? you've got the private banking system now pushing all their customers mm -hmm. onto Australia Post without a commensurate increase in the amount of money. In yep. fact, there was a decrease from what Christine Holgate actually fought for. Yep, that's right. right? And that's continued to go down or at least be weakened in part because you've got so many more people going to the post office. Yep. Right now, who's fighting for that? Not the government. Oh, exactly. They, they, and we've put forward, and the LPO group endorse it. Yeah. The LPO group are campaigning with us for a solution, an elegant, win-win solution. 
The banks are bastards. They don't want to serve people. They don't want to have branches. The post office has the biggest branch network in Australia, 4,000 post offices, the biggest, biggest retail footprint in the country. The postal, Australia Post Management, though, wants to make profits, and they all they can think is short-term, oh, we'll make profits by cutting, taking, cutting our expenses by shutting post offices, whereas we could keep the postal services for everyone in Australia by starting a postal bank, a government bank to operate through post offices that competes with the big four banks, make sure there's a service for everybody, and generates revenue to fund postal Robbie, services. the best friend of the Treasurer is Anna Bly, who does not want to see a postal bank because she represents the, post, the private banks, therefore the Treasurer, as we already know from the RBA legis legislation, he wants to weaken the power of the government to intervene on the Reserve Bank, which is unfortunately characteristic of why he won't act to get a postal bank in the first place. Yep. You could have one tomorrow if he would decide, no, let's take on the private banks, let's have a, a, a postal bank, like was done in various places around the world, like Kiwi Bank in New Zealand, and all of a sudden the private banks are now being held to account because by their own admission they don't want to be in these rural areas, they don't want to have branches, yep. right? Okay, fine, if they've given up that fight or that part of the market, let the government come in and let's actually provide bluff. the services, call their bluff. Yep. And that, this is this is why it's so crucially important that we you know we get the, the postal bank up and running. Exactly. So look, um, a lot more can be said, but you know, it was for long-term viewers of the show, Craig would remember that when we did that campaign in 2020 and 2021. I mean, we every episode of our show was about that. We gave it the updates. It was quite exciting. We we got attacked in Parliament for what we achieved there, etc. We wanted to get Christine Holgate reinstated at Australia Post, but they made sure that didn't happen. Um, since then, we've had, to, we've had to go on to other issues, like we, we campaigned for the Sterling First victims. We took up the bank branch closures um, I, uh, issue to push for the postal bank solution, which is still advocating for the post offices. One of the things that, when I asked the question before, what is it, what, it's an indictment of the system that all these UK postmasters were being sent to jail and nobody was paying attention. I, one of my epiphanies in our campaign was, that, was when I learnt just what post offices were going through here, what LPOs were going through here, I personally felt um, ashamed that I knew nothing about this, this essential service that we all took for granted, hmm. right? Yet there was turmoil behind the scenes. But politicians did know about it, like the people at the ministerial level, etc. And it is an issue that we're not going to let go of, right? Because... It relate, we have a solution to, to everything. We can save Australia Post, we can save banking services, and we can take away the power of these, of these banks, but we have to break this corporate mentality that, that the banks have, the Australia Post management have, and the damn government has. And, and, if, and that's why I think this UK postal scandal is so important, because if you need to see it in extremes, look at it there and realise, well, we don't want to have to deal with it getting that bad here. And now's the time to intervene and keep supporting that fight. All right. Before we run out of time, though, we want to have a bit of fun with um, uh, Mr. Malay. So we better get onto that. And I hope we may not have, we may not be able to do this total justice, but um, we'll get the debate going, shall we say? So, um, don't be conned into economic slavery dressed as freedom. And I, I want to introduce it this way, Craig. What would you say if a politician came to you or a political candidate, wherever, said? Politicians are pathetic. They couldn't organise a chook raffle. And if you're in a pub, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah! No, yeah. Stupid, stupid politician. And if that person said, 
bureaucrats are useless. They got no idea of the real world. Yeah, sack them all. Yes, that's right, sack them all. This all, this is all, you know, um, music to everybody in the real world ears, right? They, they yeah. know this. The government is dysfunctional. They've got no clue about anything. Yeah! Right? Yeah. So far, what's there to argue with? And I'm agreeing. Right? All those things I agree with. Don't worry. I agree with. But then that person said, that's why we should privatise everything. Now, in the 80s, everyone said, yeah! Now, if you said that, hopefully, 90% of people who have experienced the 40 years since the 80s will say, wait, what? Didn't work, mate. And that is how they sold that pup to us in the 80s. They whipped up, you know, the, 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 the council worker on the, the, the stop sign, you know, lazy council worker, the lazy Telstra worker, telecom worker, all that. So they, they had all these, all these um, you know, uh, uh, just, they just ridiculed people and they, they, they manipulated public opinion that way. Yeah, I think, look, a real-life opinion, uh, uh, example. Every Saturday I take my grandkids swimming. For swimming yep. lessons, right? Yep. What grandparents do. I've got to drive uh, 40 kilometres. I go down City Link. It now costs me $25 to go down and back, right? It takes 55 minutes on City Link. I now deliberately won't pay Macquarie Bank anymore. I take an extra 20 minutes and I take all the back streets, right? You have to. Because you can't. That's a, that's $100 a month to yep. pay to Macquarie Bank, which I should have been in the hands if there was any tolls at all in the hands of the government. If you had it in the hands of the government, funded by a national bank, you wouldn't have to be paying tolls. And you know, when they, when they built CityLink in 1999, we looked at the figures of this, the final price at the time was about $4 billion. But if the government had just borrowed to build it, it would have been about $1.7 billion. But that was the private, the private part, made it so much more expensive. And that private investor ended up getting this 50-year concession that they can just keep extracting those tolls from us for 50 years. And the problem, Robbie, is... Because the private the, sector is so much better, Craig. But Yeah, yeah and the, the, the problem is that these, these streamlined infrastructure projects are so important in terms of the economy that many people just have to pay those taxes, which is what they are, because otherwise you've got vehicles on the road for 25, 30 minutes longer. Hey, you've just said something so important. I want people to, to take note of that. The, Craig has named them right. These are taxes that you're paying to a private company. You're called, they're called tolls, but they are taxes, right? Taxes. And, the, and the libertarians who invest in Macquarie Bank aren't complaining about those taxes, right? And so Harvey, let's get on to Harvey Malay because we're going to run out of time, but I'm, I'm glad you said that because that was one of his issues in this stupid speech he gave. So the reason we're doing this is because this week there's been all this hype around this speech, but the hype was totally misinformed because people, basically they were being told is this, oh, the president of Argentina went to Davos and he spoke truth to power. He was like Jesus going in there and, and clearing the money changers out of the temple. These were the elites and he denounced them to their face. What a champion, right? And when they, when they hear about Malay, they hear, oh, this guy wants freedom. He wants to get rid of the bureaucrats. He wants to get rid of all this stuff. This is, you know, all these things that have driven people nuts, right? Like, and a lot of this is supercharged because of the experience with COVID. I understand that. But what he gave with Craig was not a... It's like people didn't listen to the speech because what he gave was a speech about economic policy and included in there that, that taxation is violence and, you know, government should have no right to tax, etc. But... But corporations do. Corp, like in his world. So let me just go through some of the elements because I've got, I got some, uh, I got some uh, quote here. He let it all hang out. But first, 
the idea that he was some kind of outsider at Davos is a joke. He used to be a WEF global young leader. He used to be the in-house economist for big multinational corporations and one of the top billionaires of Argentina, right? Some, I mean, Davos are his people. That's the first thing to understand, right? Don't fall for this kind of hype. Um, the second thing is uh, though what he actually said, right? He let, like I said, he let it all hang out. His central claim was that global economic growth was stagnant until, until around the year 1800, and then it was the adoption of capitalism. He called it capitalism. What he meant was free trade liberal economics. The adoption of that saw an explosion of wealth and economic growth. And that, therefore, you can either have an economic system that suppresses economic growth and keeps people poor, or you can have this wonderful free market liberal economics and everyone, and, and um, that's where and it's got to be freedom. Uh, governments shouldn't intervene in it, and that's how you, you reduce poverty, uh, etc. Um, he, he said this, is, this proves the virtue of, of the capitalist freedom, which the state must not interfere in. Now, a lot of people would, you know, I'm familiar with the libertarian arguments. Let me say I don't hate libertarians, right? I just think, I, I'll, I'll state now though, it's juvenile. Because in their fantasy, they wish government didn't happen. They're just well-heeled anarchists. They just, they just wish government didn't exist. Government does exist. It's not about debating whether government is legitimate or not. Government exists, and it's going to do what it's going to do. But as Abraham Lincoln said, what we want is government of, for, and by the people. Right? Um, but anyway, come back to that. Here's the quote, though. What I, I think it was virtuous, almost. Um, quite extraordinarily, in the middle of his speech... Uh, he said this, because he's a free market guy, he said, there are no market failures. And that's quite, a, he said, there are no such thing as market failures. He says, if somebody considers there is a market failure, I would suggest that they check to see if there is state intervention involved. And if they find that's not the case, I would suggest that they check again, because obviously there's a mistake. Market failures do not exist. But then he had to admit to something because even in any economic system, they have to acknowledge there is a thing that happens in, in an economy that gets called a market failure. I'll keep reading the quote. He says, an example of so-called market failures described by the neoclassicals is the concentrated structure of the economy. From the year 1800 onwards, with the population multiplying by eight or nine times per capita GDP, grew by over 15 times. So there were growing returns which took extreme poverty from 95% to 5%. And so he's saying that's a good thing. However, the presence of growing returns involves concentrated structures which we would call a monopoly. How come then something that has generated so much well-being for the neoclassical theory is a market failure? And what he's actually doing is explicitly defending the existence of monopolies. He goes on to say, regulating monopolies, destroying their profits and destroying growing returns would automatically destroy economic growth. But that's defending fascism, Robbie. Well, of course it is. That's what that is, where you allow private institutions to completely take over government. Yep. That is the classical definition of fascism, like with Mussolini and others. Well, because, Craig, this is what he, what he advocates is actually Darwinian economics. Hmm. It's survival of survival the fittest, right? The, the, the powerful consume the weak, and that's good that way. That's, that's actually which what they think. Which is also caveat emptor, the buyer Ca exactly, beware, which caveat. is Scomo's Yeah, all that, theory. right? And if you had that kind of system, 
the, the, the strong will consume the weak, right? And you will get more and more concentrated structures. And what you get is oligarchy. You get what we call oligarchy, the, where the power, this elite private power is, and it's, or, or fascism, is greater than the government itself. That's what you get. And he's saying that's a good thing. Yeah, except, Robbie, there's a problem with it, putting this guy in the first place. First of all, Argentina was going to be part of the BRICS group of countries. Like there's been now another, there's, there's 10 groups associated with the BRICS because another uh, five got admitted uh, in, uh, I think it was uh, late last year. Yeah. Argentina was supposed, was supposed to be one of them, supposed to be six, but this guy got elected president. He says, no, no, no we're not going to do that. We're going to dollarise our economy. We're going to privatise everything. So he's gone down the classic Western neoliberal economic model against the the actual global trend now, which is what's happening with the BRICS and many, many other countries. I mean, the... the, the well, um, just hold that thought. Here's a quote from him. Think about what you just said. He said, thanks to free trade capitalism, the world is now living its best moment. Well, why is it then, <laughs> Robbie, that you've had the BRICS groups, you know, BRICS come along, you've seen China and Russia expand their economy, you've seen... Russia, uh, sorry, China lift hundreds of millions of people out of politi- po- poverty, which wasn't done through private corporations, but by direct government programs. It, it was there, there was a it, it it did included the introduction of genuine free enterprise, but yes. never un not restricted, never corporatism, never unrestricted, always with the government having more power over the corporations, always and funded by some of the biggest national banks in the world. This guy is saying, you know, there's 20 more countries at least at a minimum want to join the BRICS straight away because they see the global, the cooperation amongst the BRICS countries on the win-win idea of mutual economic benefit based upon infrastructure, development uh, and investment in infrastructure is the way to go. There's another 70-odd countries that want to join as well. The global south is overtaking the western countries economically as we speak. So what this guy is talking about is absolute horseshit. He is lying because he's lying through his teeth and he's presenting a picture, and I don't think the Argentinian people are going to be very happy for him very long. Well, it's not going to. It, it's already starting to fall apart on the home front. He's he's aligned Argentina to the United States, Israel, and Ukraine geopolitically. Right, that's that's who he's said are his his um, allies, um, and and told the BRICS to go away. Although he did have to send a letter to China saying please don't please don't scrap our um, our swap uh, arrangement right because you know if you if you want to have free trade and you're going to turn your back on the biggest trading country in the world China then that's that's just lunacy so he's had to temper that a little bit he said I just want to this what I'm trying to point out is there is a difference between what sounds good as a message and what he actually delivers so he said he, he, he he's going to scrap the central bank of Argentina right and I mean, we hate central banks too. We want national banks, but we hate central banks too. So I can see why people would have thought that's great. But what did he do? He said, well, we're going to scrap the peso and have the US dollar, which means he's handing, he's scrapping his own central bank, but he's handing control of his economy over to the US central bank. That's actually the US Federal Reserve, which controls the US dollar. That's what he's doing, right? Um, and giving up the, the total, if you hand over your, if you adopt another country's currency, you have no sovereignty left, right, and all this kind of stuff. Where globally now there's a move out of the US dollar for the <laughs> development of other currencies to trade in because people don't want to get trapped yeah. into the slavery of the US dollar. The meat and potatoes. And, and then the last point I wanted to make, Craig, um, and get your comment on, is that he, 
the, look, he's probably sincere. I don't want to question that per se, but um, even his analysis of what caused this economic growth in the 19th century is totally um, wrong. It's totally wrong. So he said he has a simplistic juvenile worldview, which a lot of libertarians are, um, whereas if understanding history will tell you the other thing that happened around 1800 is the Americans had won their war, revolutionary war. George Washington had become president. Alexander Hamilton became Secretary of the, of the Treasury. He invented national banking and started applying it in the United States. This set up a debate in the United States that raged, or continues to rage, but it really raged between then and, and Lincoln about are we going to be, a, are we going to be a, a country under the British system of free trade and therefore under the East India Company, or are we going to be a, a truly independent country and have our own um, economic prowess. We need a national bank. We need tariff protection for industries. We need to foster industries through building infrastructure. And they called that the American system. And that was at odds with the British system. And the, the, the great liberal economists that still revere today that Harvey Malay got all his ideas from, like people like um, uh, David Ricardo and John Mill, James Mill and John Stuart Mill, all these people, the, 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 the giants of British liberal economics, the freedom economics, they all worked for the East India Company, the greatest the biggest monopoly in the history of the world. And, and, and when you understand that what Malay calls free trade, the Indians called loot because mm-hmm. it was coming out of their country, right? For 250 years, the British extracted something like it's estimated $45 trillion from India in the name of free trade. $45 trillion and kept that country completely impoverished. And that, that went into, into British coffers. That is not free trade the way that it gets sold to people. That's just looting. That's what the Indians knew it to be. The Americans fought really hard against that. The Americans, the good side of America, inspired a lot of other countries to say, we're going to do that as well. Mm. That's why we had a fight over national banking and becoming a republic here in Australia, etc. Those are the things. This, this rolling out of investment into the well-being of people through economic means, those were the things that drove economic growth. Not this airy-fairy idea, oh, we went capitalist in 1800, right? It comes back down to the idea that government is therefore of and by the people controlling the institutions that create the means by which the economy, which is designed to support the people, can grow to benefit the people. And as soon as you put corporatism and private uh, interests ahead of that, not that you don't have private interests, you do. You have enterprise. You fund... These, uh, encourage you know, it. Pr- encourage private enterprise. You encourage the small business owners, right? You encourage the the ability of uh, people to take on new initiatives. But if you don't protect the small business owner and the family farmer and from corporatism, from corporations, right? Yes. They will lose all their power That's to those correct. corporations. That's yes. the role. In, the individual never had any power against these these large elite economic powers, Craig, until they organise themselves into government, where that institution can be more powerful than. The corporations, and if it ever goes the other way, as Malay is advocating, as the fascists advocate, as the oligarchs want to keep, right? Why are we fighting on the Reserve Bank front, for instance? That's the same thing. Take the power away from the elected government and give it to these private. unelected private powers. Mm. That's fascism. Don't fall for this guy. I understand the frustration with government bureaucracy and all those sort of things are true, but. It's just life that we live at. A, when you're born into a time where there's where there's troubles, there's always problems. You're responsible for. There's never some perfect world where you can have a nirvana because you tweaked a few things. 
we have to make, it's our job, it's our responsibility, our time to make government be the best it can be. That's why we have to expose corruption. We have to expose, and then we do that. We have to, what we've spent the first part of the show talking about, etc. We have to expose those things. We have to expose the ideologies that make government dysfunctional, but not give up on the idea that we have to have a government that works all for and by the people. And Robbie, this is the 36th year of our party. We've never deviated from that particular fight. And you know, the national banking has been the core yep. of everything for those last 36 years. Because it worked. Well, that's the whole point. It is, the, we're the only institution that represents the voice for this policy of the American system in this country. And consequently, you know, with a national bank, a postal bank, and the other key fights that glove in with that, which is the Glass-Steagall, banking separation powers, you know, protection of cash, all of these policies are designed to protect the general welfare of the population moving forward, never deviated from it. Yep. And we also have the programs necessary, you know, for real necessary infrastructure development of the type that China is doing. Large-scale infrastructure development proje projects funded through national banking, creating infrastructure that acts like the arteries through the, 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 the human body to create the activity mm. that we need economically. Another type we used to do too. We used to do some of that. All right, well, Craig, I hope that uh, stimulates some debate. Um, uh, if it has, make a comment below. I'll try and, and, and um, engage. Um, but we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks Thank to the, the viewer for uh, tuning in. Please share this widely. And also remember, you've got until the 2nd of February to make a submission to the RBA reform bill. If you haven't done it, um, make it immediately. Um, see you next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.